Section 11 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Midnight Cave, Part 4. The most difficult fact for us to apprehend rightly about our Lord's three and thirty years' life is the amount of it which was lived to God, to God only, to God secretly, without any apparent connection with the great work of redemption, or without any visible benefit there and then, to the welfare of mankind. Next to God, Mary seems to usurp an unexpected amount of his time, presence, and divine communications, yet with how legitimate a usurpation. As it is the tendency of our modern mind in science, rightly rebuked by the geological discoveries of the secular epochs of our planet, untenanted by man, to make ourselves the centre of God's works, and to look out only for adaptations, ministries, and subserviencies to ourselves, in all the glorious kingdoms of animal, vegetable, and mineral magnificence. So we are apt in theology too much to regard our Lord as coming to do one two-sided work, first to teach us lessons of heavenly wisdom, and then to suffer and die for our redemption. We almost picture him to ourselves, more or less unconsciously, as a modern man of active habits, engrossed in his work, losing no time about it, bending all things to it, and, if not precipitate about it, at least diligent, exclusive, and decisive. In the light of this modern view we construe his words to Mary in the temple, forgetting the eighteen years of apparently inactive seclusion, which, as a matter of fact, followed the utterance of those words, and again we put a like construction on his seemingly impatient speech about his passion, not discerning those supernatural principles of love of souls and thirst for suffering and appetite for shame, which our Lord's example has impressed forever upon Christian holiness. It seems to us strange that our Lord's human life should be of any use to God except as the instrument of our own redemption. The idea of worship is faint and feeble in our minds, Work, utility, success, palpable results, these are what we look for. Hence we neither habitually see how inexplicable, on our principles, our Lord's division of his life into thirty years of seclusion and three of active work really is, nor discern the divine significance of it when it is pointed out to us. We thus do an injustice to his secret created life of adoration before God, and almost ignore his wonderful exclusive occupation with Mary, which absorbed so much of the time he spent on earth. This causes us to misread the Gospels, to arrange the mysteries of our Lord in wrong order and with bad lights upon them, and to miss in many of the mysteries that which is most specially divine about them. In their measure, these remarks apply also to the mysteries of Mary, and to the place which they occupy in the life of our blessed Lord. The things of God have an air and odour about them unlike the things of the world. Like the fragrance of the woodlands, we are conscious of the sweetness, but do not trace it to the mossy bank, or to the withering herbs, or to the dew-bathed flowers from which it comes. We may even see the things of God, and not know them when we see them. They seldom bear their divinity in their outward appearance. It is not stamped upon them, but hidden in them. However much we have prepared ourselves for their secrecy, they are, in the experience, much more secret than we were prepared for. Hence it comes to pass that divine things almost always take us unawares. There is also a noiselessness about them which brings them upon us when we are least suspecting their neighbourhood or dreaming of their approach while at the same time they are so swift that they have come and gone without our having had time to pause upon them. We only know from the breathlessness of our souls that we have suffered some divine thing. 
They pass upon us, not as growths of earth, they only float over it, like the clouds that dapple the moon, never anchoring their shadows there, but always passing, though sometimes with an imperceptible slowness. They seem even to be regardless of their influence upon earth. They look as if they did not intend to influence it, or as if their influence were a by-play, a consequence of their presence, which they could not avoid, but which they did not value. An accident inseparable from them, certainly, yet still an accident, about which they were not anxious, and on which they laid no stress. It is as if they had derived some of his self-sufficiency from God, who is their author. Their value, and they are conscious of it, is not their having done a work on earth, but their abiding life and beauty with God forever. The individual soul is world enough for them. For they only want a kneeling place on which to put themselves before the majesty of God, and in the sunlight of his glory. When they have reflected back upon his magnificence, one of his own rays, their mission is accomplished, but their work passes not away. That reflected light of theirs lies over the vast awfulness of God, and is beautiful there forever. So was it with Mary's first worship in the cave. The light of it is lying upon God this hour. A century of church history is a less event in the chronicles of the Incarnation than that act of Mary. The supernatural value of our actions depends upon our degree of union with God at the time we do them. But what spirit of angel or soul of man was ever in such union with God as the soul of his blessed and sinless mother? Neither had there yet ever been a moment in which she had been so closely united to God as at the moment of our Saviour's birth. The moment of the Immaculate Conception was indeed a marvellous epoch in the world of grace, momentary in lapse of time, secular in the immensity and durableness of the work. The moment of the Incarnation had been yet more wonderful. Who can say how wonderful, but her union with God had grown inconceivably during his nine-month residence within her bosom. How could it be otherwise? Thus, at the moment of the Nativity, she was more closely united to God than she had ever been before, for union was the especial distinguishing grace of those nine months, and she was united to him with a union compared to which the most glorious mystical unions of the saints are but as shadows and as semblances. Her ecstasy at midnight was, as it were, a spiritual rivet to that union. When she saw the child born, lying on her veil, with hands stretched out to her, as if mutely asking to be taken up, he asking, the orphan God, for the embrace of a mortal mother's arms, and when she saw the beauty of his face, and felt it passing into her soul, was she not immersed in God as never creature had been before? Her first act was an act of love, but it was the highest love, the love of adoration. Although she had languished to see the human face of our blessed Lord, yet now that she gazed upon it, it was his divinity she saw, rather than his humanity. To her his human nature unveiled rather than veiled his Godhead. She saw in him and worshipped especially the person of the Word, the second person of the undivided Trinity. As none had ever been so near to God, so none had ever worshipped him so well. The angels, who had been lying for ages in the blaze of the uncovered vision, saw not so far as Mary, though they saw differently, and while they worshipped, with all the capacities of their grand natures, they worshipped not so wonderfully as she worshipped, for they were in shallower depths of divine union and of transforming love than was she the mother of the Most High. She, as it were, encompassed our Lord with her ecstatic worship. All he was and is and has, she covered with her praise, her wonder, her fear, her joy, her love, her jubilee, 
She, who had more than miraculously compassed him in her bosom, went as near to compassing him with the immensity of her worship as it was possible for mere creature adequately to compass his illimitable and uncreated glory. His divine person, his divine nature, his human nature and his soul, as well as his flesh, the passable state in which he had vouchsafed to come because of sin, all these she worshipped, mindfully and tenderly, separately and together, with clearest intelligence, with deepest abasement, with sweetest love, with most awe-stricken admiration. All his perfections as God came before her in wonderful order, enchained together, flowing out of each other and back into each other, each looking both backward and forward at once. She saw them also as one perfection, as the divine simplicity, and then she saw them as no perfections at all, but as his simple self, a self with no perfections but the act which he himself is, a self with no separable attributes but only an eternal life which is ever living in itself, too simple for thought, too beautiful for speech, too magnificent for love, too jubilant for fear, only to be rapturously adored, with a timidity which transcends all fear, and with a familiarity which far outgrows all audacities of love. In adoring the divine perfections of the newborn babe, we may well believe that Mary worshipped particularly those attributes seemingly most opposed to his infant state. The instincts of prayer would lead her that way. The very circumstances of the mystery would suggest it. She adored profoundly the eternity of him who was but a minute old. She congratulated him in the boldness of holy love on his having been from everlasting, co-eternal with the Father, and at the same time eternally a son. She exulted in the knowledge that from all eternity her babe had with the Father, breathed forth the Holy Ghost, and had been with the Father the principle from which the co-eternal spirit had proceeded, and was forever proceeding, and was to proceed for all eternity. It was a joy to her that time, old as it was, was a younger birth than him whose birth in time was one short minute since. She was abased with sweetest reverence when she looked into his childish face, and with delighted faith hailed him as time's creator. She looked upon him in his weakness and his helplessness. His beauty was so frail that it seemed as if a breath of summer wind might have blown him away. It was as if he could not lift himself from the ground on which he was lying, or raise himself into his mother's arms. Yet in that weakness she adored his almighty power. She worshipped him as the unfatigued creator, who had built up the massive worlds with an act of his will, who held the mountains in the hollow of his hand without the effort of sustaining them, and who directed the earthquakes and the storms as pliant and docile creatures where he pleased. She exalted in the boundless majesty of his tremendous power. She congratulated him that, at that moment, all creation hung upon him with its whole weight, and that, were he to loosen his hold of it for an instant, it would fall back into that nothingness from which it came, and to which, through its own infinite imbecility, it is ever tending. She felt and joyed to feel that she herself was but as the breath of his mouth, and that she too was relapsing into nothingness, unless he held her up by the irresistible gentleness of his vast power. She worshipped him as the god to whom nothing is impossible, and yet whose power works with such facility, such smoothness, and such delicacy, that it makes no sound in its going, feels no effort in its magnificence, and strives not in its career. He upheld all things even while he slept, and yet his features were sweetly relaxed in the graceful abandonment of infantile slumber, and upon his countenance there was no sign of care, 
nor strain of labour, no shadow of government, nor semblance of occupation. She beheld him speechless on the ground. Only perhaps an inarticulate cry was rising from his childish lips. But she worshipped him as the articulate word of the Father, pronounced from all eternity, and even now being eternally pronounced, with most inexplicable articulation. He who expressed, not to creation only, but to the Father himself, the whole of his marvellous perfections, he who with unutterable distinctness outspoke the whole mystery of the Godhead, he who pronounced in the language of his co-equal beauty all the hidden things of the divine nature, he it was who was lying speechless on the ground, and Mary adored him in his truth, not in his seeming. He wore the same look of unconsciousness that other infants wear. His life looked the animal life, of infantine wants and woes and little jubilees, to be expressed by bright eyes or by sounds which are language only to a mother's ear. But in this apparent unconsciousness she not only recognized the mighty reason in full possession of itself, but she also adored that immense and uncreated wisdom, which is in some sense the favorite attribute of the word. She exulted in the thought that there was no wisdom among angels or men which was not simply a derivation from his wisdom, and that there were no philosophies or sciences which were not the merest scintillations of his uncreated knowledge. All the impenetrable secrets of creation were out of the hidden treasures of his wisdom. The marvellous plans of nature, grace and glory, countless in number, bewildering in variety, incalculable in their profundity, were all but as the merest surface of his ever-blessed mind. The intricacies of providence, those dark and seemingly contradictory problems which have often driven to wildness or despair the irreverent questioning and profane inquisition of the human understanding, were all calmly evolved by his skill in lucid beauty and admirable sequence. The very unconsciousness of the babe held a light over all this abyss, and Mary looked down and saw and worshipped. Thus also to the mother's eye, his littleness magnified his immensity. He seemed all the more illimitable because he was so small. He lay upon her veil a mere span of fair human life, but she knew that in truth he was outstretched beyond all possible spheres of imaginary space. She adored the omnipresence of that tiny prisoner whom a delicate frame of flesh and blood was now containing. For nine months she herself had compassed the incomprehensible, and now she saw, as it were with her bodily eyes, the immensity which had lain so long like an unopened flower in her own virginal bosom. She rejoiced with him in his universal presence, in his immeasurable essence, in his unconfined liberty, in his inexplicable, unlocalized simplicity. She congratulated him that all about him was boundless, not only putting away from itself all the limits of imaginable perfection, but far transcending in its own awful truthfulness not only all actual existence, but all possible existence. The possibilities of omnipotence far outstrip the flight of created imagination, but to equal the immensity of God is impossible even for God himself. Finally, when Mary beheld him trembling with the cold, and discerned the pathetic sadness which mingled with the brightness, and perhaps saw him weeping human tears, she worshipped him whose eternal life was an unspeakable beatitude. She recognized in him the uncreated fountain of all created joy. She knew that, at that instant, he was filling to the brim myriads and myriads of angelic spirits with celestial exaltation. She knew that there was not a joy on earth among men or animals, but it was a sparkle mercifully struck from his abounding and self-sufficing gladness. Nay, when our lives and the lives of those we love are dense with sorrows, 
there is a joy even in the sorrow, like the fragrant damps of the close dripping woods of midsummer, and that joy is but the sweet bliss of God, compassionately making its way even thither. Thus it was that, while Mary worshipped Jesus with the most perfect worship of which a mere creature is capable, she especially adored those perfections which to outward seeming were least compatible with his infant state. She beheld also how his human nature lay in hypostatic union with his divine, and therefore was itself entitled to the honours of divine worship. Hence she worshipped the spiritual beauty of his sacred humanity. She worshipped the flesh which he had taken from herself, and in which he was to suffer, and by his suffering to redeem the world. She worshipped it as the real sacramental food of all the generations to come, to be adored by all the faithful upon the altar. She adored it also as impassable and glorious gifts which it already contained within itself. She adored with the most delighted reverence the precious blood which was flowing in his veins. She exulted in the abundance and even prodigality of the redemption which the munificent shedding of that blood was to accomplish. She congratulated him on the countless victories of grace which it would procure for him, the marvellous holiness of the saints and the magnificent conversions of sinners, and the glorious perseverance of all who should die in union with him. She saw that precious blood in its course over the world as a broad and brimming river, carrying fertility into every land, flushing the face of nature with the verdure of grace, causing the wilderness to blossom as the garden, and the barren rocks to be covered with shadowy woods, redolent of odours, golden with fruits, and resonant with songs. She beheld, in its broad bosom, huge fleets, freighted with heavenly treasures, sail onward to the eternal sea. She admired the silent, irresistible beneficence of its sweet streams, and adored it in the veins of the child, and wept tears of humblest joy as she thought of its fountains in her own immaculate heart. She worshipped his sacred heart with all its sanctified affections. She saw his immense love of herself therein, and penetrated the wonders of which that love was full, and how gloriously the human and divine were blended in it, and were one unequalled, unprecedented love. She beheld also the place which each of us occupied at that moment in his all-embracing heart, and surely it would seem to her that there was nothing about him more adorable than his inexplicable love of sinners. More wonderful is that love than even the all-wise means by which he emancipated sinners from their sin. She adored his soul with all its marvellous operations, and its depths of wisdom and of joy. Nothing was omitted in that act of worship. Everything found its place, everything came in its right order, to everything its due honour was paid, so far at least as a mere creature could pay what was due to God. Such was Mary's first act of worship, an act of which we shall be able to conceive more worthily, when we have considered in subsequent chapters the babe's perfections as God, and the eminences and excellences of his soul and body as man, considerations which we have been here obliged in some measure to anticipate. But these are things which bear repetition well. Now let us reflect on all that was involved in this act of adoration. As was said before, Mary is not only the sovereign creature, she is the representative creature also. Thus her worship was offered in the name of all creatures. It was creation's recognition of its incarnate creator. Moreover, she began in it, and, as it were, officially inaugurated all the manifold Catholic devotions to the sacred humanity, such as those to the sacred heart, to the precious blood, to the blessed sacrament, to the infancy, to the passion, and the like. 
She not only began them, anticipating the loving inventions of the saints, but she surpassed all that the saints have ever done in each. That act of worship is a life in the church at this present hour, passing daily into holy hearts, guiding the sense of the faithful, supplying fair types of various devotions, and queening it with tranquil preeminence over all other collective homages of redeemed love to the sacred humanity of the Redeemer. Her worship also, let it be observed, was not disjoined from the worship of St. Joseph, with whom she was in the closest spiritual union, as God had united them in the transcending unity of the earthly trinity. His worship and hers had one prerogative, which the worship of none else could have, for they offered to Jesus with it the authority they were to exercise over him. From Joseph, as from Mary, our blessed Lord received the worship of those whom he himself had constituted his superiors. If the bent of the hearts of the saints is a token of the bent of Mary's heart, and is itself the instinctive inspiration of the heart of Jesus, then in these latter days it would seem that by nothing could we so effectually unite ourselves to the heart of Jesus and of Mary as by a loving and reverent devotion to St. Joseph. Moreover, in this act of worship our Blessed Lady recognized us as her children. She was conscious of the place she occupied in the creation of God. She began already to fulfill that office with the insignia of which she was publicly invested upon Calvary. She offered herself to the newborn babe for us. She was willing to be our mother. She was ready to endure for us those dullers with which she was to travail with us her second birth, so unlike the painless childbirth of that night. She was prepared to represent us in all her tender ministries to him. She offered us also to Jesus. She offered us to his love. She freighted her prayers with our names. She yearned for our more and more complete conversion, and longed that we might be part of the happy triumph of his passion. By her effectual intercession she bathed us in his precious blood, and was forward to accept that active and prominent place which she occupies in the secret life of grace with every one of us. For us also she offered Jesus to the Father. With heroic love she gave back for our sakes what for her own much more than for ours she had just received. She saw that Calvary was in the offering, and yet she drew not back her uplifted hands. Such was her beautiful threefold oblation. She offered herself to Jesus for us. She offered us to Jesus. She offered Jesus to the Father for us. Then from the height of Calvary she turned round and faced the church of all coming ages and offered to us all our blessed Lord for our acceptance and our love. So she climbed from the cave to the Eternal Father, from the offering of herself to Jesus to the offering of Jesus to the Father. For if the first thought of the mother is for the child, is not the second for its father. Thus was completed the mystery of Bethlehem. Thus were we present there in our mother's hands and in our Saviour's heart. It has taken long to tell, yet it was but for a moment that Jesus lay upon the ground. In a moment all these things had been accomplished. The tyranny of time sits lightly on divine works. They have other measures. The infinite must needs be instantaneous. O oh, happy mother, happy beyond all thought! She has seen the face of Jesus, and he smiled into her face. Was it through tears? What significance was there not in that celestial human smile? He smiled as a son smiles to a doting mother. He smiled as the victorious Saviour who had redeemed her by the Immaculate Conception. He smiled as the Creator, who complacently regards the most lovely of his works. He smiled as the last end and beatitude of her whom he rejoiced to glorify and to have with him for eternity. 
He smiled as God, smiling unutterable and unimaginable things. Of a surety there was some special expression in that first look, in that many-meaning smile, which reminded her of the Immaculate Conception as distinctly as if he had spoken. Nor was the joy of that smile less to her than its significance, but she alone can tell it. It makes us tremble with expectation to think that that same smile will one day be a joy to us, and a joy which will not pass away. But like all the aspects of God, that smile brought with it a world of grace. It was substantial, as God's visitations ever are, substantially affecting that which it expressed. How, therefore, must it have lifted her in sanctity, and been to her almost like a new creation? A look of his converted Peter, what must a smile do, and a smile into his sinless mother's face? O sweet babe of Bethlehem, when shall we too kneel before thy face? When shall we see thee smile, and smile on us our welcome into heaven, smile on us with that smile which will sit upon thy lips as our own glory and possession for evermore? Listen, the last strip of cloud has floated down under the horizon. The stars burn brightly in the cold air. The night wind, sighing over the pastoral slopes, falls suddenly, floats by, and carries its murmuring train out of hearing. The heaven of the angels opens for one glad moment, and the midnight skies are overflowed with melody, so beautiful that it ravishes the hearts of those who hear, and yet so soft that it troubles not the light slumbers of the restless sleep. End of section 11